Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Robert Black. You can call me The Professor. You might know me from The Room Minute, a podcast where my co-host Allison and I are exploring Tommy Wiseau's modern classic, The Room, one minute at a time. And so for me, it comes down to this. An old man bedridden, rich enough to bring the hospital to him, as it were. A youngish woman taking a stranger she just met on a tour of her friends and exes, and I do not even get to talk about property deals, or Chinatown, or how so much of Los Angeles history is steeped in land deals for good and bad. The way the L.A. basin grabbed up water from other parts of the state alone has been the subject of numerous books. But this minute is not about that. There will be no mention of Shaheen and development downtown until next week. This minute is about Diana and Jack. We might cut to a few reaction shots from Ed, but he is in full somnambulist mode, more asleep than awake, and he does not really matter in this conversation. Larry will arrive with Joan, but whoever's hosting next week can talk more about her. The characterization of Diana is important here. I have already talked about Diana as femme fatale, Diana as manic pixie dream girl, Diana as damsel in and out of distress. Now it is Diana as sugar baby that matters. Except that the way Pfeiffer plays Diana, Diana is far too innocent to be any of these things on purpose. She told Ed, minutes 68 to 69. He's a very rich man. I was his mistress. I, um, I was modeling and, uh, trying to you know, make it as an actress, and mostly I hung out a lot, and uh, I, I met Jack at a party. We went to Europe together for fun, and it just sort of evolved. And he gave me an apartment in Westwood, and credit cards, and my Porsche. It was easy. It was nice. It was easy. It was nice. She suggested... Minute 70, that Ed's wife's affair might be romantic. And how easily did Diana drag Ed along? How casually did she call aerospace engineering fascinating? What do we know about Diana? If she is the same age as Pfeiffer, she is 26 when this movie is filmed. About five years ago, so when she was 21, she became Jack's mistress. She went with him to Europe and all that. She said minute 32, she knew Elvis. Her brother Charlie suggests that she may have fucked Elvis, but she did not know him. Elvis died in 1977. Diana would have been 19. Of course, it is the 70s, and it is Elvis, so maybe Diana knew Elvis earlier. Pfeiffer was Miss Orange County in 1978, sixth place for Miss California. She got an agent and made her screen debut on Fantasy Island, 25th November 1978. The timeline all fits. Additionally, go back to that photo album Ed finds at Charlie's. 
At first, I called that thing a portfolio because this is what it seems to be, modeling photos of Diana. Except he goes a few more pages and there are candid photos, a graduation photo maybe, and at least one photo of Diana with Charlie. It is a photo album, but there are no parents. Simple characterization. Diana is raised by her brother. He's eight years older. He eventually resents her, but cannot help but let her use his apartment again all these years later, only to regret it when she flies off to Europe once again and neglects to cover the rent. Diana has no father figure in her life. Maybe he dies in Korea. It's hard to be sure. Their mother cannot hack it alone. Diana grows up even more dependent on the men around her than the patriarchy would usually have a girl be. Diana graduates high school, maybe 75, 76. Maybe she has already been modeling. Her brother is a performer. She is conventionally attractive. Why not go into modeling? Go into acting. Five years ago, she is 21. She is at a party. Maybe it is at the Pink Palace where Dean Martin threw those huge parties I talked about in Minute 81. Or some other similar mansion. Maybe that is what she does to pass the time. Acting is not working out. Modeling is not paying well enough. And she grew up with a strange mix of forced independence and over-dependence on men. She goes to these parties and she meets men like Hossie, men like Hamid, men like Jack. They buy her things, they take care of her, they give her Porsches. It is easy. It is nice. Anything for my princess. <laughs> but what are these men to Diana? What is she to them? We will learn next minute that Jack knows who Hossie is, who Hamid is. One has to wonder. Regarding her brother's suggestion, minute 30. She makes friends so easily. What is the nature of Diana's relationship with these men? Is it sexual? Is it romantic? Jump forward to the Atlantic, 15th January 2015. Terence F. Ross makes the connection between rising student debt and an increase in sugaring. He writes, quote, Yes, these men are ponying up their money, plus more, for financially struggling students. However, it's not free money, and it's not all students. In other words... These benefactors typically expect some compensation from their beneficiaries, students who generally tend to be women, willing to accept the help from the men in exchange for providing some tender loving care, and, at least, flaunting their good looks, end quote. Ross goes on to explain that today there is even a website just for getting into this sort of relationship. Seeking Arrangement. Seeking.com. Jack and Diana, and the Mellencamp reference just occurred to me, had to meet in person, of course. I might call it random, but we could suspect that this was why Diana attends the parties that she attends. Rochelle Nelson writes in the Huffington Post, 6 November 2014, referencing a Dr. Phil episode, a quote, Riley, 26, is a self-described sugar baby who dates older wealthy men who shower her with gifts like cars, luxurious vacations, shopping excursions, and thousands of dollars a month in cash. I always say, finances before romances, she says matter-of-factly pointing out that she doesn't get completely nude or have sex with the men, many of whom are married. Though she's been criticized for being a homewrecker and called a whore by critics, she is unapologetic about her lifestyle. When she sits down with Dr. Phil, she explains why she believes married men enjoy her company so much. They're looking for what their wife isn't offering anymore. After you've been married for so long, you lose that TLC, like holding hands, just listening, talking about other oh, things. So you're a relationship expert. I feel like I am. I do feel like I'm like a high-paid therapist in a way. You're obviously loaded. Riley explains. Um, if your wife, no, I'm just saying, like, if your wife got fat, stopped wearing makeup, wearing sweatpants, you're going to lose interest, but you still have that love. 
And some people don't want to start over. That's when she steps in. We make them happy so they go home to their wives and they're like, oh, I'm happy now. Maybe I'll treat you better because I'm in a good mood. End quote. It is hard to say this is not inherently sexual, whether it explicitly involves sex or inherently romantic. But Diana might not be in a quote-unquote relationship with any of these men, as we might normally define it. But normal or not, there is a relationship here. And with Pfeiffer's performance, innocent but not naive. And with Richard Farnsworth cast as Jack, it does not feel torrid or dirty. It feels easy. It feels nice. Drugs. Jack's eyes move from Diana to Ed, and second six angle on Ed, and he diverts his attention. Maybe it is to avoid whatever eye contact from Jack might indicate in the moment, or maybe Ed is looking at all that medical equipment. And like we might not, he is not buying the idea that a guy who can afford this property, all of this equipment set up in his house, and he cannot get any interesting drugs? Minute 35, Ed stops on a Hollywood street and gets propositioned by a prostitute and then a drug dealer within a minute. You want a day? What? Do you want a party? No. Hey, man, uh, you want any lutes, uh, coke, hashes, acid, grass? No, thank you. No? No sweat. Call me. And Jack cannot get any interesting drugs? 
Me, I am reminded of Roy Cohn and Angels in America hoarding experimental drugs because he pulled strings and worked around the testing to be sure he was being treated with the latest AZT. His nurse Belize calls him the dragon atop the golden horde. Jack cannot get interesting drugs? Ed might be sleepwalking, but he ain't stupid. Second nine, close on Jack, looking toward Diana. Actually, looking at Diana's body. Then, as he speaks, his eyes rise to her face. With a different actor, this might feel sleazy, but Farnsworth, who started his film career as a stuntman and ended it as an old man traveling to see his brother on a riding mower in the straight story, does not seem to have any sleaze to exude, even if he tried. Looking at his IMDb, he was in a lot of westerns, often as a stagecoach driver or a sheriff. He would have first come to my attention probably in The Natural, 1984, a movie I saw too many times as a kid and remembered far better than it deserved when I returned to it for my blog last year. Most notably, Farnsworth played the plucky sheriff Buster, a character invented for the film adaptation of Stephen King's Misery, a good guy who ends up in a bad situation. I imagine a version of Into the Night where Ed gets shot in the standoff in the airport tunnel at the end of the movie. Or where Ed wakes up at the Ramada and Diana is, in fact, gone. And the darker ending, I think, I would have loved this movie more than just appreciated it. But that is neither here nor there at this point. Jack gives Diana a once-over and speaks. It's good to see you, Peach. Second eleven. Close on Diana. She is not making eye contact. She is coy. Coquettish, but innocent about it. Natural about it. I couldn't figure out what Joan was doing here. Which should tell you something about Jack's relationship with his wife. That her actually being at their home would be extraordinary says a lot. I had no idea. Second 16, back to Jack. After years of compulsive spending, she's finally taken an interest in estate planning. Second 22, angle on Diana, but with Jack in the frame. A lower angle than any of the other shots, slightly out of place. She laughs. Seems genuinely amused by what he just said. The humor lingers, dies. Then second 26, Diana speaks. Did she tell you I called? When? Diana looks up, laughs, looks at Jack again. When? Jack, I've been trying to get a hold of you for six months. Second 26, close on Jack again. It's Joan. That bitch. Something about Richard Farnsworth calling someone a bitch, I assume she must be. He seems too nice to use that word casually. She's very thorough. Second 42, angle on Diana over Jack. A beat, and Jack indicates the out-of-frame Ed with a nod. Who's this? Diana looks to Ed. Oh. Second 47, angle on Ed. He steps forward, and we might notice the fancy clock on the fireplace mantle behind him. The time is 7.20, not 9 o'clock, as Ed suggested when he woke Diana in the tunnel. Of course, this clock could be wrong. Fancy clock like this probably needs to be wound regularly. Diana clears her throat. Um, Ed Oaken. Ed opens his mouth like he is going to say something, but Diana keeps talking. Angle on Diana, second 51. I really got myself into some trouble, and, uh, well, he's the only one I've been able to count on. Second 56, angle on Ed as there's a sound off screen. Behind the camera. Ed looks that direction, then back on Diana and Jack as they also look that way. Second 57, reverse, the doorway behind the hospital bed. 
Enter Joan, Vera Miles, followed closely by Larry, Jack Steinfeld, who now wears a neck brace. Vera Miles has 160 acting credits on IMDb, from an uncredited role in 1950's When Willie Comes Marching Home, to Separate Lives in 1995. She appears, of course, in a couple of the best westerns you could watch, 1956's The Searchers and 1962's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. She also, of course, plays Lila Crane in 1960's Psycho. Additionally, she and Richard Farnsworth appeared together in the 1983 TV movie Travis McGee. What is this? She looks past Jack at... Well, the eye line does not quite match where Diana or Ed were standing, but I assume that is just a mistake in the blocking when they set up for this tracking shot. Next minute, it will be obvious that while she does not specifically recognize Diana, she knows what Diana is to her husband. She will tell Diana, Whoever you are, or think you are, there have been a dozen just like you. But for now, Jack responds, It's an orgy. Joan turns her attention back to Jack, and time runs out for this minute. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Once again, I am Robert Black. You may call me The Professor. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I have been up to, including The Room Minute, the podcast where my co-host Allison and I are exploring Tommy Wiseau's modern classic, The Room, one minute at a time. What are you talking about? Every episode we discuss behind-the-scenes details, explore thematic elements, and talk about what happens at a midnight screening of the film. Additionally, every week we offer up at least one other bad movie worth watching. There are over 100 other Movies by Minutes podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com, and many of them are quite good, so you should check them out. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Nightminute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.